parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Jesus would take a story out of the immediate present. He told stories about seeds and agriculture. They were an agrarian society. He told stories about the marriage customs that everybody knew about. Uh, And he would take that and put it alongside of truth about spiritual things. It happens most of the time when you tell a joke. I was reminded by a buddy of mine of that cute joke this week. We were having a lot of rain, and we were reminded of that joke of the old man who woke up one morning, and it had rained and flooded up to his porch. And a fire truck came by. If you've heard this story, you know it. But a fire truck came by and said, Come on, we'll rescue you from the flood. He said, No, no, the Lord will provide. The Lord will take care of me. And so he stayed in his house that day, woke up the next morning, and the flood waters uh, were up to the... uh, first floor so he stood in the second floor and a boat came by floated by a second story window said come get in the boat let us rescue you he said no the lord will protect me and so he spent that day in his house and the next morning he woke up and the floodwaters had filled his house he climbed out on the roof and a helicopter showed up and it said let us rescue you he said no the lord will protect me well with that the floodwaters overtook the house and he died and he went to heaven and he got there and he said to the lord lord why did you Why did you not protect me? The Lord said, you know, I sent you a fire truck and a boat and a helicopter. So there's a moral to the story, and most parables have a moral uh, to the story. There's a meaning behind it. Now, Jesus told parables for a couple of reasons. One, he wanted to teach truth in memorable ways. Uh, Probably you won't remember most of what I tell you, but you'll remember the, the joke I just told you. It's memorable. I sent you a fire truck, and I sent you a boat, and I sent you a helicopter. What more could I do? He also wanted to raise and answer questions about the kingdom. A lot of the parables begin with the phrase, the kingdom of heaven is like, like the mustard seed, like the sower who goes out to sow, like so many things, like the ten virgin parable. And so a lot of times he'll take what is earthly and he'll place it alongside of heavenly truth to make it memorable. You know, they didn't have video games and Jesus was a gifted teacher. He only told about... 50 or so parables. Some, some say there's 30, some say there's 40, some say there's 50. One, one of my texts says there are 52 parables. Well, for the next uh, so many weeks, 10 or 12 weeks, you're going to get one per week, sometimes two per week. And the first one I want to share with you today is the parable of the Good Samaritan. Now, the, the question is this, what is the purpose of, of the parable? Every parable has this at its goal, is to teach one main truth. So when you interpret the parables, that's really the question you want to ask. What is the one main truth God wants to teach through this parable? Don't get slavishly involved with the parable. Each detail of the parable does not have to have a specific interpretation. That's not the goal. Because if you build your theology from the parables, you'll get in big trouble. But there's a goal in the parable of the Good Samaritan, and it comes in the context. Most of the time, you go to the context in any scripture, and you'll find out what the meaning is. And the context is in Luke chapter 10. If you have your Bible, turn there. If you don't, we'll have the verses up here for you. And it starts out in the context, Behold, a certain lawyer stood up and put Jesus to the what? Say, put Jesus to the... So this is a guy who's testing Jesus. Now with most lawyers, he's up to no good. Just kidding, if you're a lawyer, we love you. This was not a lawyer in the practice of civil law. This was a lawyer who was an expert in religious law. The Jews in their Old Testament had 613 commandments or laws. Some were the thou shalt, some were the thou shalt nots. And they had interpreted them over time. And the lawyers were used 
to cite case law in religious discussions, sometimes civil matters as well. So he was a guy familiar with the laws. In fact, by the time, uh, not long after Jesus, they had this much law. They took the, the Mishnah and the Gemara and they put it together in a thing called the Talmud. Today, when you want to be a Jewish rabbi, you still go and study the Talmud. It's about this many books on a shelf or about two gigs on your hard drive. And the test was, teacher, Jesus, what must I do? What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Well, Jesus, being a good Jewish person, always answers a question with a question. He says, and what is written in your law? How does it read to you? And so the man quotes two very specific scriptures. If you have a translation of the Bible, most of the time it'll do what this has done. It's taken the Old Testament quotes and it's put them in all capital letters. The lawyer answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength, vice versa, and with all your strength and with all your mind. That's a specific quote from Deuteronomy 6.5. Deuteronomy 6 verse 5 is called the Shema. It starts out with the phrase, hear, O Israel, Shema Israel. And many Jews to this day believe that all you must do to get to heaven is be Jewish and pray the Shema prayer three times a day. Shema Israel, hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one, and you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. And then he also quotes uh, from Leviticus 19.18. Old Testament law says, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Even if it was that guy in the movie, you've got to love him like yourself. Okay. So Jesus answers him. And he says, you have answered correctly. And then he also quotes the Old Testament. He quotes here uh, Leviticus 18 and verse 5, and Jesus says, do this and you will live. If you can take those two principles, love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself, you will obey all the commandments. If you take the Ten Commandments, the Big Ten, the first four commandments are loving God. The last six commandments are loving your neighbor as yourself. Now, nobody can do all that. You can't even keep ten. I can't. Paul says, I'd like to keep ten, but the last one keeps tripping me up. The, the law of coveting takes place in the heart, and my heart is wicked. See, that's why we need a Savior. If you're here today expecting us to be perfect, you've come to the wrong place. We are not perfect. And we understand that because of our sinfulness, Christ had to come and pay the punishment that our sinfulness earned by dying on the cross in our place. But Jesus is involved in this discussion with a lawyer, and he's trying to test him. And so the lawyer... Wishing to justify himself, says, another good Jewish response, and who is my neighbor? I'm guessing if this was a lawyer, he'd file for depositions and spend 20 or 30 hours taking the depositions trying to define what is a neighbor. He'd quote case law after case law after case law. But in the parable of the Good Samaritan, Jesus is going to answer this question, who is my neighbor? Say that. Who is my neighbor? Okay. Who is my neighbor? That's the purpose of the parable of the Good Samaritan. So Jesus is going to take an earthly situation and give it spiritual truth that it will stand on and that we can apply to our lives. Now the great thing about the parables is, although there's really only one correct interpretation, there are many ways to apply this. And here's what Jesus does. He, he, first he unpacks the parable. He replied and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. Say half dead. Half dead. Now you know, if you've watched another one of the great movies of our generation, there's a big difference between half dead and all dead. If he's all dead, there's only one thing to do. What's that? 
Go through his pockets and look for loose change. What movie? The Princess Bride. Rent The Princess Bride. Memorize every line. That would be a great thing to do with your family this summer. You've got to watch it at least five times because it doesn't get funny till the third showing. But after that, you can have a whole discussion. My four sons can have complete discussions that take an hour in which they're nothing but quoting movie lines. And if you don't know their brother language, their poor in-laws are just, what are they saying? He's half-dead. I looked up the word half-dead, which in the movie is mostly dead. And every single translation translated half-dead. And I'm thinking, man, that must be a real interesting word. It only occurs one time in the New Testament. And it's really the word half-dead. It's the word hemi, which we get hemisphere from, and dead, which is the word thanatos, and it's hemi-thanatos. There's no other way to translate it. He was robbed. He was stripped. He was beaten. He was poor. He was... He was half dead. I know what that feels like. Especially, you know, I'm glad we only have two services. When you have to preach three services, I go home and I'm half dead. So that's the, that's the setting. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Probably a Jewish man. Now let me show you why you always go down from Jerusalem to Jericho. This gives the parable uh, some understanding. This is a map of the country of Israel. It's a narrow land, about 130 miles from there down to there. Jerusalem is in the south. Jericho is about 15 miles away. But notice that that's all desert, and that's up in the mountains. That's actually the highest point in the country. You would always have to go down from Jerusalem in any direction, but particularly to Jericho. Jerusalem is about 2,800 feet high. It gets snow in the winter, some, some winters. Jericho is the lowest city on earth. It's a thousand feet below sea level. So in 15 miles, that's from here to Bardo. Anybody here from Bardo? Imagine driving... Darlene, are you from Bardo? Now that explains a lot of stuff to us. We love Darlene. (laughs) From here to Bardo... I used to say Barto, and then I was corrected by a Bardoian. From here to Barto, imagine going downhill three quarters of a mile. I mean, really, when you go to Jerusalem and look all over the backside of the mountains, you can see Jericho. It's down the mountain. The road looks like this. It's called the Ascent of Blood. And that's just really the road. That's the old road that people traveled from for generations. Now, if you were Jesus, if you were anybody in that Jewish world, you understood all about this road. Jesus lived in uh, Galilee. Galilee's up here. Nazareth is right there, and any Jewish person would not go from here down to Jerusalem because they didn't want to go through Samaria because the Samaritans and the Jews hated each other. Why was that? Well, near the end of the Old Testament, most of the Jewish people were taken by the Assyrians, and King Asherbanipal of Assyria took all these people and he kicked them out of the land. Then he brought Gentiles into the land who intermarried with the few Jewish people that were left, and they became the Samaritans. They were a mixed race people. At the end of the Old Testament, some of the Jews got to come back to Jerusalem, and they started building a temple. And the Samaritans showed up and said, hey, we'd like to help. And the people in charge of the temple building said, no, you may not help because you're not totally Jewish. Now, it was not wrong to have a racial intermarriage. What was wrong was that they wanted to help because they had also falsified the Jewish religion. It was at that point that this huge split occurred. 
the Samaritans said, well, if we're not going to be allowed to build your temple, we're going to build our own temple. And they built a Jewish temple at Mount uh, Gerizim. Remember in the New Testament, Jesus, in John 4, it says he had to pass through Samaria because Jewish people didn't pass through Samaria. They would go down to Jericho and up across the Jordan River and then into Galilee. And the whole discussion with the Jewish woman, or with the Samaritan woman, was where should we worship? Should we worship in Jerusalem or here at our mountain? Is your temple right or is our temple right? Jesus said it's not a matter of where you worship, it's a matter of how you worship. Spirit and truth is what's necessary. But the Samaritans and the Jews hated each other, and the Samaritans also knew that every Jewish family was required three times a year to go to Jerusalem. Now think about that. If Jesus is 35-ish, well, plus or minus a year or two, and he's been three times a year to Jerusalem, he's been on that road a hundred times minimum. Jesus knew about the road or the, the ascent of blood. Every Jewish person knew the ascent of blood because, see, the Samaritans also figured out the evil element that is in every Samaritan crowd. Kind of like in Bartow, there's that criminal element down there. Just kidding. They knew that the Jewish people who were coming to Jerusalem and from Jerusalem had to carry with them all their worldly possessions, all of their shekels, all of their valuables, all of their jewels, anything that was worth it, because you, the whole town would leave and go to the feast. It would take a week. Actually, it was about a two-week deal. And so Nazareth was closed, and they didn't have safety deposit boxes and wire transfers. You carried your money with you. So the robbers understood that they could hide pretty much along this road and all of these switchbacks, all of these switchbacks that would go back and forth around every bend was a danger. And so to tell the parable makes all the sense in the world. A man is going down that road, and along that road, uh, he's robbed, and he's beaten. And they went away leaving him what? If he was all dead, there was only one thing left to do, go through his pockets and look for loose chains. Now here's the rest of the parable. By chance, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by where? Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on thee? Now again, Jesus is trying to have a discussion with a Jewish lawyer, and his favorite people were the priests and the Levites. Now, interestingly enough, the parable takes place going from Jerusalem to Jericho. I could almost understand that if you were a priest and you had to work at the, at the festival, at the feast, that you wouldn't want to stop and help a man who was dead on the way to the feast. Because if you touched a dead body, it made you unclean and you were no longer eligible to celebrate one of the big feasts. But they're not going to Jerusalem, they're coming from Jerusalem. The feast is over. So there's no reason not to stop, except they just don't want to stop. And so they passed by on the other side. Parent 750, your neighborhood of children needs you. <laughs> now, but a Samaritan who was on a journey. See, here was a guy not going to a feast, not coming from a feast. He probably didn't celebrate the feast. But he was on a journey, came upon him. Now, I, I'm a guy, and I get this. Ladies, you know this too. When you travel with your husband, you are on a journey. We're interested in the destination. My wife would like to stop and shop in antique stores. Not me. I'm going 74 miles an hour until I get to the destination. Because I might get there 10 minutes early. 
than if I stop. What's the goal? The goal is to win. When we're driving, we're in a race. It's not about the journey, it's about the destination. But here's a man who interrupts his trip, and he stops. And when he saw the man who was beaten and robbed, and mostly dead, he felt compassion, and he came to him and bandaged up his wounds. The word felt compassion is a wonderful word. It's the word for your spleen. It's the word splagizo. Say splagizo. It comes from your innermost being. He saw and he felt in his splagizo. He was moved to compassion. It's the same word used when Jesus saw the people and they were like sheep without a shepherd and he felt splagizo for them. He was moved and he came to him and he bandaged up his wounds pouring oil and wine on them. The pouring of oil is a, is a generous thing. It's a very expensive thing to do. It's the word... It's the idea of when Jesus had the woman pour oil on his feet and they complained that the money could have been sold and given to the poor. It wasn't cheap to do this. And he poured wine on him and he put him on his own beast and he brought him to an inn and he took care of him. And more than that, on the next day he took out two denarii. A denarius is a day's wage. So, you know, for, for Brian and Don, that would be like four or $5,000. And he took out two denarii and he gave them to the innkeeper and he said, take care of him and whatever more you spend when I return, I will repay you. Now, that's the story. The story is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. The meaning is designed to say, what is a neighbor? And so Jesus looked right at the lawyer and he said, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? And the man said, the one who showed mercy toward him. Interesting, the man didn't say the Samaritan. He couldn't even bring himself to say Samaritan. In the Jewish Talmud, there's actually a prayer that the rabbis would say, Oh Lord, I thank you this day that I am not a Gentile or a woman or a Samaritan. Ladies, I'm sorry, I didn't write the prayer. They thought they were all second-class citizens. At best, Samaritans were in no way even getting into heaven. And many Jewish rabbis would stand up and pray that prayer. They wouldn't even say the word Samaritan in a normal conversation because that would make them unclean. And so Jesus said, which was the neighbor? The one who showed mercy toward him. And Jesus said, go and do the same. And that's the parable. Again, that's the interpretation of the parable, is to teach us what is a neighbor. A neighbor is anyone that comes across our path that has a need that we are able to meet. And so by way of application, there are many. You can pick and choose, or you can have God speak to your heart in whatever way you want. But the first one that I notice is this, that Jesus turns neighbor into a verb. Neighbor is a noun, but Jesus takes it and he makes it an action word. If you read back through the text, all of these verbs are continuous verbs. He saw the man. He felt splagizo. He came near to him. He helped him. He bandaged him up. He poured oil and wine. He sacrificed his two days' wages. He gave uh, of his time and his talents and his treasures, and he followed up. If the man owed anything to the innkeeper, he was going to come back and take care of that. That's what a neighbor is. Boy, I'm not great at that. I'm the neighbor who complains when the dog barks too loud. 
But Jesus said, hey, a neighbor is a verb. It's a, it's a person who is proactive and not reactive. It's a person who, in a real sense, is the hands and feet of Jesus, who looks at people with the attitude of, how can I serve them? That's one of the reasons I love being a part of our church family. We're looking for ways to serve people. And so as a church family, we have a lot of neighbors. That's step number two. We have a lot of neighbors. You know, first of all, you have neighbors uh, in four places in your life anyway. You have your neighborhood, and, you know, God may allow you to have a ministry in your neighborhood. That'd be awesome. But that's not always possible. But you do have neighbors on your job, those people that you work with. If you're really being a good neighbor to them, you will look at them and look at ways to help, look at ways to make them succeed. You will serve them. Whether you're their boss, you serve your employees. If you're an employee, you serve your employer. You also have people in your social world. If you like to do stuff outside of home, uh, you have neighbors. If you go out to eat, there are neighbors out there. If you go to the ball field, there are neighbors at the ball field. If you go fishing, there are neighbors that go fishing. If you play golf or tennis or slaughter innocent hogs, there are neighbors out there that do that. You have your home neighborhood, you have your job neighborhood, you have your social network neighborhood, and you also have your family, which is your neighborhood. You know, and by, by the way, last week, you, how many were here last week? How many were not? How many don't remember? Last week we talked about being good neighbors to our children. We still have needs for parent partners to help at all ages. And, you know, it, it's, it's something that has to be done. We still have a need there, right? And it's not something you've got to do every week. But if you have kids in the program, you ought to help at some point. Some people end up doing all the work, and that's not fair to anybody, and it's not good for you. You don't learn how to serve. Okay? As a church family... Uh, you know, we're involved with, uh, with the Highlands, Highland City Elementary School. We've chosen to say, hey, those are, those are kids and teachers that have needs that we can proactively uh, be involved with. Also, as a church family, uh, you know, we, we look to do things uh, in other places. You know, we have the ministry to Haiti, the, uh, the, the Hope and the Joy and Hope ministry is a ministry to, to neighbors that don't even live in our state. Uh, The Dominican ministry with backpacks. It's another ministry to neighbors who are in the Dominican. So there are neighbors in all sorts of places. You may even have neighbors in Bartow. And we love Bartow. And then lastly, uh, you know, again, the the definition of neighbor according to Jesus is anyone God brings across my path that has a need that I'm able to do something about. Now, you cannot meet every need. If you try to meet every need, you won't meet any need. But I think God wants us to be intentional about being proactive when people are called into our lives and across our path. And so my my prayer for us this summer is as a church family that you engage your neighbors, primarily in, in, in and around us, the neighborhood neighbors, the job neighbors, the social network neighbors. I don't want to give you one more thing to do, but let me tell you how this works. If if you're going to the ball field, you know, have all-stars now, all-stars is a great opportunity to minister to people. My wife, God bless her, sat through more baseball games, and she didn't even like baseball. But she used it as a ministry tool to love on the moms of the kids that she was concerned about. So ask God, if you're at the ballpark, 
Who can I minister to and show that I'm the hands and feet of Jesus to? That may be, you know, guys, if you're coaching these kids, that may be the only opportunity they have to, to find a guy who cares about them in their life. Or maybe you like to go fishing. I don't like to go fishing unless I know I'm going to catch a lot of fish. But that's a great way to spend time with people. And so I can go and be with my neighbors. If you're going to go fishing anyway, take somebody that you're concerned about where they are spiritually and just love them. You don't have to say anything. Just love them. Pray for them. Ask if God wants for, you, for there to be an open door for ministry, that to happen. If we did that this summer, my guess is that by the fall, when we start doing things that invite the whole neighborhood to, you know, at our Halloween deal, we couldn't fit them in here last year. Suppose we had twice as many people. Not that we're interested in the number of people, but we're just interested in being the hands and feet of Jesus in the lives of people that don't yet know him. Suppose you like to hunt hogs. And Brian tells me there's no such thing as an innocent hog. But if you're going to do that anyway, do it with guys, or at least include one or two guys, that you're concerned about where they are spiritually. If you're going to go do that, you know, if you're going to go eat anyway, make sure you spend time eating with people that are your neighbors. Find what it is you're going to do anyway and see if you can include in that program an opportunity to be with neighbors and just love them. And again, it's so good that they see that we're not perfect. We're not perfect. It's good that they see that our kids misbehave just like theirs. It's good that they see that our dog barks just like theirs. It's good that they see that we're just real people, but we have a Savior who loves us and gave himself up for us. And that's what we're about. You don't need to beat them over the head with your Bible. Just pray for them. God will open the door or he'll open the door for somebody else along the way to share the, the good news of Jesus with them. And that's what we're about. And so as the band comes, I'd like you to pray. And I'd like you to pray very specifically that God would lay upon your heart the name of one or two people, just one or two, that over the course of this summer, you can be their neighbor, because they're yours. Maybe all you're going to do is rent the Princess Bride, which I can't imagine you have to rent that. Everyone ought to own the Princess Bride. But make sure you get the Princess Bride and bring them in and just enjoy that. Or the Burbs, or any other dopey movie that's out there. Just use it for fun. Love them when they're sick. Visit them. Encourage them. Pray for them. Father, we just thank you for Jesus and this incredible parable of the Good Samaritan who was willing to stop what he was doing and interrupt the destination to be hands and feet. We pray you'd give us opportunities this summer as a church family to love others for Christ's sake. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.